Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. By now, you've likely heard that Hollywood icon Doris Day died earlier this week. She celebrated her 97th birthday on April 3rd of this year. Doris Day was a Hollywood legend, a singer, and an animal welfare advocate. She was best known for her singing and dancing talent and later for her starring roles in nearly every genre of film during three decades in the movie industry. Chances are you recognize the name of at least one of her 39 films, which included Calamity Jane, The Pajama Game, and Pillow Talk. Doris Day also had many hit songs during her career, one of the most well-known being Que Sera Sera, Whatever Will Be Will Be. What might be less known to some is her lifelong history as an animal activist. Doris Day was a passionate animal advocate, and she left a profound mark on this world that will continue to inspire many and to improve our world for all four-legged creatures. Her compassion to reduce animals' pain and suffering led her to fight against animal testing and to advocate for spay and neuter education and outreach programs throughout the United States. One quote often attributed to Doris Day is, I've never met an animal I didn't like, and I can't say the same thing about people. Miss Day said she once told Hitchcock that she could not continue working on the set of The Man Who Knew Too Much if the horses, donkeys, and dogs used in the film were not treated with respect and adequately fed. In the 1970s, she created the Doris Day Pet Foundation, which is now the Doris Day Animal Foundation, a national nonprofit 501c3 public charity with a clear and straightforward mission that continues to this day to help animals and the people who love them. As a grant-giving charity, the Doris Day Animal Foundation funds other 501c3 organizations across the United States that directly care for and protect animals. In 1971, Miss Day co-founded an animal welfare nonprofit organization called Actors and Others for Animals, which frowned upon publicly wearing animal fur. She also founded nonprofit organizations that advocated for better treatment of working animals in Hollywood. When Doris Day began her foundation, she did so for the same reason so many animal rescuers and advocates offer their own time, resources, and funds today. She realized too many innocent dogs and cats were being put down due to a shortage of resources and loving homes. The foundation's website states that Miss Day personally rescued hundreds of animals over the years, as well as fostered animals in her own home. Together with her foundation, she then leased kennel space for animals in need, provided for veterinary care, and worked with a dedicated staff of volunteers to find loving forever homes for many homeless pets. With her growing reputation as an animal lover, Miss Day would frequently find unwanted dogs dropped off at her gate. According to her foundation, this earned her the affectionate nickname, the Dog Catcher of Beverly Hills. Given the number of dogs Doris Day personally rescued and fostered, she'd certainly done more than most people do in a lifetime. Still, her work in animal advocacy did not end there. Even after she began the Doris Day Animal Foundation, she recognized that what needed to be addressed was the fundamental cause for the vast number of unwanted pets. She was determined to do something about the pet overpopulation crisis. In 1987, she formed the Doris Day Animal League, an organization with the mission to reduce the pain and suffering of animals through legislative initiatives, education, and programs to develop and enforce statutes and regulations protecting animals. The Doris Day Animal League is a national nonprofit citizens lobbying organization dedicated to protecting animals through policy initiatives, education, and corporate engagement. 
Together, Door State and the Animal League went on to found Spay Day USA in 1995 to address pet overpopulation. Spay Day is turned into an annual global event resulting in the spaying and neutering of approximately 1.5 million animals in the first 15 years of its existence. It is now known as World Spay Day. Although Spay Day is now organized under the guidance of the Humane Society of the United States, the Dorstay Animal Foundation provides annual grants for the event. In 2007, the Dorstay Animal League merged with the Humane Society. Today, with the internet at our fingertips, we have PetsFriendly.com, BringFido.com, and a host of other resources to help us locate hotels and other accommodations where our companion animals are welcome. If you like to travel and bring your dogs along, you can credit Dorstay for making it possible. An article in the Mother Nature Network notes that when Miss Day retired from Hollywood in the 1960s, she settled at Carmel-by-the-Sea in California, where she co-owned the Cypress Inn. There, she created a pet-friendly policy. It was likely one of the first of its kind. The Cypress Inn website states, Doris's deep devotion to animals helped put Cypress Inn on the map as the pet-friendliest inn in the pet-friendliest town in America. Doris DeAnner Foundation also worked to shut down puppy mills, supported a bill that would ban the slaughter of wild horses, advocated for more pet-friendly hotels, and airlifted pets to safety when Hurricane Katrina devastated Louisiana. Doris Day will be truly missed by many. She was a woman who paved the way for animal advocates everywhere. To find out how you can help continue the vital work she began, go to the Doris Day Animal Foundation website or the Doris Day Animal League website. Farewell, Doris Day. We will miss you. Animals and humans around the world say thank you. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now celebrating our 11th year of broadcasts, visit us at animalstodayradio.com. According to Live Science, 145 pilot whales were found stranded and dead on a remote beach in New Zealand. Nobody knows why. So a hiker discovered these stranded whales and reported it, but by the time authorities got there, nearly half were already dead, and the other half were in such bad shape that experts decided to euthanize them. 145 of them. Apparently, according to the experts, pilot whales are very social and travel in groups of 20 to 90 individuals, and it's not unusual for the large groups to strand together. But why this happened remains a mystery to scientists. According to the Department of Conservation, one hypothesis is that the whale's echolocation isn't as effective in shallow or near shore waters as it is in the steep areas. And because these guys, like other cetaceans, use echolocation to find their prey, which include things like squid and octopus and small fish, it's possible that when the whales follow their prey closer to shore, the whales become disoriented and are unable to find their way back to sea before beaching themselves. And another theory postulates that the whale's social tendencies mean that when one whale washes ashore, others follow to help out, only to tragically get stuck themselves. Or it could be a combination of factors that cause these animals to strand, but really the reasons are still unknown. Also, according to Live Science, last week there was a dead sperm whale that washed ashore on a beach in southern Indonesia. And what they found in its stomach was... Let me guess. Guess. Plastic. Yes, exactly. 13 pounds Hmm. of plastic trash. 
The trash included more than 100 plastic cups, four plastic bottles, 25 plastic bags, two flip-flops, and hundreds of other pieces of plastic. A marine species conservation coordinator at WWF Indonesia told the Associated Press, although we have not been able to deduce the cause of death, the facts that we see are truly awful. Earlier this year, another dead sperm whale washed up on the coast of Spain, likely killed by the 65 pounds of plastic trash discovered in its gut. According to a 2015 study published in the journal Science, since 2010, Indonesia has ranked as the second highest plastic polluting country in the world after China. It produces more than 3 million tons of plastic waste per year. Indonesia's coordinating minister of maritime affairs told the AP that the dead sperm whale should inspire the country's government and its citizens to significantly reduce plastic use. The AP reported that he said the government is working to urge shops to discontinue use of plastic bags and for communities to educate students nationwide about the problem. The Indonesian government aims to reduce plastic use by 70 percent by 2025. Okay, Lori, what else you got there? Well, over the past several weeks, as we're walking our dogs, we're seeing more and more mushrooms or mushroom caps growing up from the grass. I remember on the show, one of my interviews with veterinarian Robert Reed, I think the topic was backyard hazards, and he mentioned a common underestimated danger to your pet, which is mushroom poisoning. According to the Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, mushroom intoxication ranks near the top of the list of pet poisoning every year. And one mushroom called death cat mushrooms are the number one cause of fatal mushroom poisoning worldwide fatal. Hmm. So remember this people, allowing your dog to nibble on a mushroom on your walk can potentially kill him. And although this article goes into some of the characteristics of the death cat mushroom, including it omitting a fish-like odor when it decays, which is appealing and appetizing to dogs and cats and typically leads to their ingestion of it, the take-home message really is just keep your pets away from any mushroom, whether in your yard or on walks. But referring specifically to these death cat mushrooms, what a name, right? Dr. Justin Hines, an assistant professor at the Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, states, we don't necessarily see a lot of cases that we can directly attribute to ingestion, but the development of clinical signs are usually delayed by 6 to 12 hours, Hines said. Initially, clinical signs are usually gastrointestinal in nature, resulting in vomiting and diarrhea, and blood may occasionally be noted in either. Hines added that these signs will typically resolve within 24 hours. However, it's important for owners to understand that this does not mean that their pet is in the clear. Unfortunately, after about 48 to 72 hours following resolution of these signs, the patient will develop liver and kidney failure with liver failure being far more common, he said. Prognosis at this point is pretty guarded. But all mushrooms vary in toxicity, he says. Some cause self-limiting gastrointestinal distress, while others cause neurological effects such as tremors and seizures. A misidentification can lead to serious illness or death in your beloved pet. So he urges pet owners to contact their veterinarian immediately if they believe their pet has ingested any mushroom. Quote, I recommend keeping pets away from any mushroom in the yard or on walks better safe than sorry. Sorry. 
So keep a close eye on your pet during walks, people, and remove any mushrooms that might be growing in your yard. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. You know, the other day was World Rabies Day, and Peter and I were talking about this, and we realized there are probably a lot of misconceptions about rabies. A few years ago, we spoke to one of the authors of the book, Rabid. You may not want to read 288 pages about rabies, but it was well-reviewed, and we really liked it. But we do get a little freaked out about rabies and the risk it may pose to us and to our dogs. In our backyard on some evenings at dusk, we see bats flying around and not sure why, but we just go inside when they come. Peter especially is afraid of being mistaken for moth and bitten. And then what do you do? And even though we wondered whether these flying shadows are really bats, maybe they're birds. About two months ago, Peter found a small dead one on our back patio. So we know they're real and they are here. Last year, a middle-aged woman from South Carolina died of rabies. That's really scary. So what do we need to know about rabies? Dr. Robert Reed is medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, and he returns to speak with us. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to be back. Rob, we know rabies is a dangerous virus. Tell us a little bit about the rabies virus. As you probably know, rabies has been around for, well, as far as we know, 4,000 years, at least as far as documentation goes, and it's a disease that's still strong after all that time. It can affect any mammal, even people. It's transmitted through bite wounds primarily. It's passed in the saliva, and it's prevalent in our environment in in wildlife, and as you've touched on in California, the, the main carriers are bats. Um, We don't see it, fortunately, in dogs and cats very often in this country because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s to control it largely through vaccination programs. So we're very fortunate that it's rare for us to encounter uh, rabies in a dog or a cat or even another domestic animal, and even more rare in people. But it hasn't gone away after thousands of years. It's still there. It's still a risk. And efforts to control it still continue and should. And the untreated disease is pretty gruesome, isn't it? It is. It's almost invariably fatal in people and in other species as well. It causes progressive neurologic disease. So typically, Robert, you really don't know if the animals that bite you or attack you is rabid. So what are the steps one should take? Well, fortunately, our society has measures to address that. Um, Every community has an animal control agent or agency uh, that will address that. And, in fact, I think it's important if a person is bitten by a wild animal or even a dog or a cat and they don't know anything about it, uh, to contact animal control. and, And they have mechanisms in place to address that concern. Does it help to capture the animal if you can? 
It definitely does. Uh, of course, anyone who does this should do it safely or perhaps even better should contact animal control and have them do it if that's a possibility um, so that the animal can be tested for rabies. Uh, and, of course, a, pet, uh, a pet's vaccination status has a, a large impact on how that situation would be handled. So if this does occur, the vaccine, it's called uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. It, how bad is that? Well, post-exposure rabies vaccination is not as bad as what we tend to think of. You know, historically, we worried about the shots in the belly and the painful injections that go on for weeks. And I don't really think that's applicable nowadays. The injections that are given are given into the muscle. I think they are painful. They cause a lot of soreness, and everyone would prefer to avoid them um, if they could. And they are expensive. Uh, but, of course, you know, the alternative of worrying about whether your exposure is going to lead to rabies or, of course, getting the disease is unthinkable in comparison. Talk about dogs and cats having rabies. How common is that in the U.S.? Well, it's not very common, and I'm more familiar with our own area, and it's been decades since uh, the Coachella Valley has had a reported case of rabies in a dog or a cat. It is still present in bats, and and it does pop up every now and then in a bat, Uh, but we haven't had a, a case that we know of in a dog or a cat for a long time. Now, the recommendations for unvaccinated dogs and cats who are possibly infected are, are pretty harsh, huh? Potentially. You know, I think the key thing to remember um, as a pet owner with, with regard to rabies and, and, and issues that come up like that is that the decision about what happens to your pet is going to be made by representatives of animal control agencies uh, as to whether the pet goes through a quarantine, how long the quarantine is. I think in very rare instances, euthanasia, but it's much more likely to be a quarantine situation and the type of quarantine and whatever decisions are made about the pet will be affected by the vaccine status. So it's really important that we maintain um, uh, current vaccines for rabies, against rabies in dogs and cats, even though our, the state of California does not require it in cats, it is required in dogs, currently is not required in cats, it's still recommended. So Dr. Reed, the vaccination is required in dogs. Is it safe? It, it is a safe vaccination. You know, we, we don't really encounter reactions to rabies vaccine with any greater frequency than other vaccines, and it's extremely infrequent in dogs. And now in cats, you know, um, the question about rabies vaccination in cats uh, has a little bit of a, a different nuance because cats don't respond exactly the same to vaccinations as dogs do, and in the past have had some fairly unique types of reaction that can occur months or years down the road after the vaccination occurs. So the vaccine manufacturers have made some adjustments in the type of vaccines that they provide, and we now have alternatives for cat vaccinations against rabies that really don't present any great any greater risk than the vaccine for dogs, which is very low. And, um, and I think that the risk for rabies and for animal control-related problems, especially through exposure to wildlife, outweigh the risks of the vaccine. And how often are we supposed to give the vaccine in dogs? To dogs in California, it's every three years. That's a regulation. Uh, the vaccine may have protection beyond that, but it's regulated to be given every three years in adult dogs. It's given once uh, in young dogs 
after the age of 12 weeks, and then that is repeated one year later, and then it's every three years. In cats, it depends on which vaccine you use. There are one-year and three-year vaccinations against rabies for cats. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting. And this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. back to the show. There's a new report from the California Department of Pesticide Regulation showing that many non-target animals are being poisoned by super toxic rat poisons. And just the other day, National Park Service officials reported that a three-year-old mountain lion died in the California Santa Monica Mountains and was found to have six different anticoagulant compounds in his system. So to talk about rodenticides and the significance of this report, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Jonathan Evans. He's Environmental Health Legal Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. He last appeared on the July 27th, 2014 show, so I would encourage you to listen to that also. Jonathan, it's hard to believe it's been almost five years since we last spoke. I know. It has been some time, and unfortunately, a lot of the same issues we were talking about several years ago in terms of the dangers of rodenticides on wildlife and our families are still occurring today. You know, we, uh, as you noted earlier in, in the introduction, the California Department of Pesticide Regulation, even after taking steps to reduce the threats from some of the most dangerous types of rat poisons, um, we're still seeing a high level in, in wildlife, and we're still seeing un- unfortunate poisonings of pets and even um, kids going mm. to the hospitals because of um, unex- unintended exposures to rat, to rat poisons. And there have been steps taken at the federal level um, by the Environmental Protection Agency and the California Department of pesticide regulation in some states, but it just hasn't gone far enough. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people, when they're dealing with a, a rodent infestation, they, they don't realize that they're um, 
So when they go to the, the hardware store or the local convenience store to purchase um, some type of product that will help deal with their rat problem or their mouse problem or call the exterminator to come in, that they're actually having a really devastating impact on wildlife and also threatening their families. The harms that we're seeing from rodenticides are unfortunately very well known. We're seeing particularly uh, problematic effects with these uh, second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides, um, which are the super toxic ones that you referred to. And there's a range of different types of rodenticides. There are several types of anticoagulants, and what that means is essentially it's a blood thinner it can, and causes the animal to bleed to death, um, whether it's the rodent or whether it's an upper-level predator that eats that, um, eats that rodent as prey. Um, and some of these are actually uh, medical products that we see used um, to benefit people. You know, there's the, one of the, the first generation anticoagulants is, is called warfarin. It's a blood thinner that people often take when they have strokes. If you take it at a very low level, it can actually um, be beneficial if you have problems like blood clots. But if you take it at a level that it's um, provided in rat poison, it can really be um, devastating. And they introduced after the first round uh, the pesticide manufacturers introduced up in the first round the second generation anticoagulants, and that refers to just the second type, the second iteration of it, and those are the, the types of products that are designed to be lethal upon one feeding. So uh, a rat or mouse goes in and eats that rat poison and goes away. It takes a, usually a couple days for it to really take effect and, and kill the animal, and during that time period, the rat or rodent um, becomes lethargic. It, it um, starts to, to bleed to death and actually is looking for water becomes a really good um, target for upper-level predators such as hawks, owls, um, bobcats, mountain lions. And we have seen that um, in studies done by the Environmental Protection Agency uh, that these second-generation anticoagulants, these super toxic types, uh, are, have been found in 47 uh, excuse me, 44 different non-target species, 27 bird species, and 17 mammal species all across the U.S. So we have bald eagles and barn owls and black bears and bobcats from Massachusetts to the Midwest to Arizona to California that are all um, suffering from um, rodenticide exposure and uh, long-term chronic effects or even death from a lot of these um, rodenticide poisonings. And uh, unfortunately, when these um, rat poisons are used, it actually ends up poisoning a lot of the longer-term sustainable solutions to our rodent infestations. Um, you know, animals like barn owls and great horned owls, those are incredible um, natural predators at, at dealing with our rodent infestations. For example, a great, uh, excuse me, a barn owl can eat up to five mice a day. So if you're actually um, poisoning that, that um, barn owl, you're actually um, causing a longer-term potential threat through rodent infestations. And, and we know that there are much better solutions to dealing with um, rodent problems than reaching for rat poison, which actually ends up causing more problems in the long run because it kills upper-level predators, but also it doesn't really get at the heart of the problem. You know, why do you have a rat problem? Why do you have a mouse problem? Well, it has to do with um, they're looking for what we're all looking for in life. They're looking for food, water, and shelter. So the first thing you need to do as um, a 
homeowner or a resident is look at why the, the rodents are being attracted to your property. Are there food or water sources? Are they, are they getting into the trash? Are they getting into your home where you're leaving out pet food? Um, are, are there water sources they're coming towards or their shelter? Um, they're trying, are they getting in your home? So in order to, to get them out of your home, you need to, to clean up the food and water sources that are drawing them in there. You need to seal up your home, so um, sealing in cracks or holes that they come through. They'll often, um, rats or mice will often come through small little cracks near um, water pipes or gas pipes that come into your house. Seal those up to keep them from getting at, in your home where they actually cause a bit of a conflict. And then once you realize that you've sealed them out of where they're being attracted to, you can use um, non-toxic methods like snap traps and electronic traps that are humane um, ways to deal with the problem but are, are don't have those uh, types of secondary effects. There are also non-toxic types of um, rat poisons that don't affect, uh, excuse me, less toxic types of rat poisons that don't affect uh, um, non-target animals um, by using combining like sawdust and salt that actually will dehydrate the, the rat or mouse. Um, and then there are also um, baits that lead to sterilization of the, the, um, the rodents or even um, if you live in a rural area uh, using uh, barn owl boxes that can attract these natural predators that are better ways to deal with uh, the issue of um, rat and mouse infestation. So unless you get to the heart of the problem by cleaning up, sealing up, and trapping up, this uh, using rat poison is really just a short-term um, solution, and in, in ways it actually causes the problem worse. It's like putting a, a dirty Band-Aid on a, on a, a cut. It's not really going to cause the cut to heal. It's only going to cause a longer-term problem with an infection. So, Jonathan, these animals, these non-target animals like the mountain lions and the bobcats, they're eating the dead rodents? They're eating uh, rodents that have died or aren't rodents that are dying. You know, it takes several days typically for a lot of these anticoagulant rodenticides mm-hmm. to um, affect the, the, the targeted rodent or mouse. So they, during that time period, they become easy prey. And as you alluded to earlier in the introduction, you know, a lot of these upper-level predators like mountain lions are, have, have a range of different rat poisons in them, up to like six different types of, of rodenticides. And the ones that are the most problematic are those second-generation anticoagulants because they're designed to be very toxic. They're designed to, to not filter out of the system very quickly, So, you, as opposed to some of the earlier iterations of these anticoagulants that um, are only in your system for days to weeks. The um, second generation anticoagulants are in there for um, weeks to months. Mm. So each time uh, a predator eats another rat or mouse, that anticoagulant builds up in the system until it gets to be a lethal dose and that upper level predator. And where we're seeing a lot of the worst effects for rodenticide poisonings is really often in that um, wildland-urban interface where we have wildlife living close to homes. And the mountain lion story is a good example. You know, there, um, in addition to the, the recent unfortunate death of the mountain lion in the Santa Monica Mountains, there's also stories of um, successful ways of uh, recuperating uh, mountain lions. We have a story of, of P-22, which is the famous uh, Hollywood mountain lion that uh, graced the cover of uh, National Geographic in 2013 with the Hollywood sign in the background. 
Vietnam with a radio track and collar on it. And it's an incredible story because this mountain lion lives in Griffith Park, mostly surrounded by, uh, almost completely surrounded by homes as well as freeways. It likely had to cross major freeways to get there, the 405 and the 101 freeway, which are very large freeways. Um, and it lives in, in Griffith Park, which is um, several square miles. And a year after it was uh, on the cover of National Geographic, it was um, trapped and found to have an infestation of mange. Mange is a, a type of uh, skin disease that is in mammals that's caused by parasitic mites, leads to hair loss and scabs and lesions. And it's also um, researchers have found that, um, particularly in the Southern California mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains, that there's a high correlation between rodenticide poisonings and um, and mange. So the more running aside you have in an animal, the more likely they're able to come to, to mange. Fortunately, they were able to take that mountain lion, um, treat it with vitamin K, which helps deal with anticoagulant poisoning, and now P22 is, is happy and healthy and still um, rolling, roaming around the Hollywood Hills. But we need to really get at the problem of excessive uses of rodenticides in areas where there are wildlife. And unfortunately, there are steps on the horizon to really address this issue, and we're seeing it mostly at the state level because their federal government is really failing to act right now under the current administration. Um, we're seeing uh, a bill in California called the California Ecosystems Protection Act that takes two important steps. One, it eliminates all types of anticoagulant sides from state parks and state lands in California, but two, it also limits the most um, super toxic second generation anticoagulants unless there's a real public health emergency or unless there's a real environmental emergency or for, for agricultural resources. So getting those products out of consumer hands and out of the hands of exterminators that are still using those products um, that get into the uh, food chain and into the ecosystem is a, a critically important step. We just saw um, yesterday that the, the bill was voted out of the assembly, so it passed one house of the legislature in California, now moved to the California Senate. Um, so we're very hopeful that we'll see uh, another step in the direction that will help hopefully reduce some of these very dangerous rodenticides for wildlife. Okay, we're speaking with Jonathan Evans about rodenticides in our environment. There's a lot more to talk about right after the break. listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its 11th year, Animals Today covers all the important animal issues you want to know about from around the world. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization advancing the interests of animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Your donation will support the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Just visit AIanimals.org and click Support Us. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jonathan Evans with the Center for Biological Diversity. Jonathan, no one wants to see mountain lions and bobcats being poisoned and killed by rat poisons, but are any endangered species being harmed by them? 
Unfortunately, we see a range of endangered species that are harmed by rodenticide poisonings. Uh, most of that information it comes from California, where it's been studied the most. We have the San Joaquin kit fox, which is uh, an adorable little small kit fox that lives in the southern part of the Central Valley near Fresno and Bakersfield, up in the eastern parts of the California Delta. Um, that often um, is succumbing to rodenticide poisoning. Uh, there have been necropsy reports that have been um, conducted by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife that found that these second-generation anticoagulants are killing San Joaquin kit foxes. There's also been uh, a range of um, poisonings of the Pacific Fisher, which is uh, uh, listed as an endangered species in California, um, uh, mostly in the northern part of the state, um, in the Redwood country of uh, Humboldt and Del Norte County, and we're seeing high levels of exposure, upwards of 70, 80 percent of these Pacific fishers that are um, succumbing to um, Rodenticide poisoning. A lot of that has to do with illegal trespass marijuana grows on our public lands, but a lot of um, sort of gray market or black market marijuana use leading to rodenticide poisoning. We're also seeing that same type of uh, black market marijuana production leading to poisonings of northern spotted owls. Mm. So w we're seeing it uh, occurring kind of in a range of different wildlife. But but in California, <clears throat> you know, we know that um, the the animals tested four rodenticides um, are, are showing high levels of exposure. Over 70% of wildlife tested in recent years has been exposed to second-generation second anticoagulants, and that's over 25 different wildlife species, from hawks to owls to bobcats to bears. Um, you know, it really is, is hitting a lot of um, animals very hard. Jonathan, talk about these super toxic poisons and the risks they pose to humans and children and our pets. Certainly, we have some very good information from the American Association of Poison Control Centers. Annually, they pull together data on all the types of poisonings that occur from in our households. And they found that in 2017, the most recent year they have um, complete data, that more than 3,800 children under the age of six were poisoned with these super toxic rodenticides throughout the United States. And these are preventable deaths. We shouldn't be using these poisonings in households. It, it really is a, um, a, a tragic impact. We shouldn't be sending kids to, to the hospital because of these rat poisons. EPA has the Environmental Protection Agency has taken some incremental steps to um, make to eliminate some of these products from consumer use, but still we're seeing them um, um, poisoning kids at, a, at an unacceptable level. So we really need to do more. There's no reason to have these worst of the worst um, poisons on the market. In addition, we're seeing um, pets also um, dying because of uh, exposure to um, rodenticide poisonings and super toxic rodenticide. So it's not just harming our wildlife, it's harming our own families. And mm. there are steps we can take to not use these poisons, and it really is a failure of our regulators to not take stronger steps to push back on industry influence and get these products off the shelves. Jonathan, I want to tell you about our little situation at home, and maybe you can tell listeners what you think. We live in a suburban house in the desert and started noticing mouse or rat droppings in our garage. And we elected to get a few no-kill traps and using peanut butter as bait, Peter actually caught three rodents in about two weeks. Each one he released far away, but it's been a year since that happened and we haven't had any more signs of rodents so far. So we're happy we can do this without using lethal traps or poisons. 
What do you make of this? And how can people humanely deal with rodents? That's a great question, and your story is really illustrative of it's something that you is treatable in a way that is it can be humane and and doesn't cause a threat to your families. And uh, I think uh, people just need to be cautious when they are using um, live traps because you know some types of rats and mice do um, lead to can lead can be disease vectors. So just be careful when you're using that and that type of method. Is the same thing with. Uh, electric, electronic, or snap traps. Those are humane methods, but they do, um, they can lead to, uh, they, they are lethal, obviously. But you're kind of pointing to the fact that you need to address um, the the problem that's causing them. So if, if you need to figure out where they're coming in, or set the traps to uh, address why they're coming in, and if you're getting to the heart of the problem, what's causing them to um, come to your household, you can deal with it in a long-term um, beneficial way. These, these poisons are incredibly um, <clears throat> threatening, and there are certainly better solutions on the shelf right now to deal with um, rodent infestations. Jonathan, do you have any personal experiences dealing with rodent problems, and would you like to share them with our listeners? Certainly. I've had to deal with uh, rodenticide issues not only just in my professional career at the Center for Biological Diversity, but also um, have had a couple different rat and mouse infestations in my home. When I was living in an apartment building, we moved into a place where, unfortunately, the rats had gotten in through the hole next to the gas line and actually were nesting in our stove. So that obviously wasn't anything we, we, had, we were going to deal with. So we um, sealed off where they were getting in with the, um, by the gas line to prevent them from getting in, replace the stove, replace what was attracting them there in terms of shelter, um, and also realized that they were also attracted to the natural gas water heater, was where it was nice and warm, so we set some traps there to deal with the, the longer-term infestation. Once we kind of figured out what they were drawn towards for food and shelter, we were able to treat that issue uh, and, in a longer-term sustainable way um, that, caused, that prevented them from coming back home. More recently, when we moved into an older home in Northern California in the East Bay of San Francisco Bay, um, we had uh, about 100-year-old um, clay pipes that were running from our home to the uh, sewer line under the street. And, you know, they, they are colloquially referred to as sewer rats for a reason. That We um, had rats coming up from our uh, the sewer lines where cracks in the clay pipe um, and then burrowing in under our house um, because uh, we because of, of other types of um, water quality issues in San Francisco Bay, all of the homes are actually replacing those old clay pipes that are broken. Once we replace the uh, clay sewer line with a more upgraded one that wasn't broken, a lot of our rat um, problems went away. So really looking at what the, the heart of the situation is in terms of um, finding where the they're providing food and shelter for the rodents um, and eliminating those sources is the best way to deal with it in the long run um, and prevent these uh, types of rodent infestations from, from happening again. Great story. Great advice. Where can listeners learn more about the industrial use of rodenticides? Well, I think a great resource for your listeners is uh, saferodentcontrol.org. There you'll find a lot about um, safer alternatives for dealing with rodent infestations, also about the um, general uh, harms and threats of rodenticides. So I, I encourage your listeners to visit saferodentcontrol.org to learn a little bit more about how to humanely and safely deal with rodent infestations and learn about um, why we need to get these products 
off the shelves and out of the consumer's hands. Environmental Health Legal Director and Senior Attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity, Jonathan Evans, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Laura. It was great speaking with you today. Okay, thanks for joining us on Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Thank you.